This is Art and Stuff with me, Ben Miller. It's the podcast where we look at objects in museums across the UK, tell their story, and maybe even learn a bit too. I'm joined by various associates, and we peer into the alcoves and glass cases, and they tell me stuff about the stuff. It's dead easy. It's Art and Stuff. I've never really got bird watching. A lot of sitting quietly for hours in the freezing cold, hoping for a fleeting glimpse of a nuthatch or a bar-tailed godwit, isn't exactly my idea of fun. Not without a hip flask, anyway. But think of one of those exotic birds of paradise, and things get more interesting. It's usually a bit warmer for a start. The males are festooned with fascinators, flashing dangly bits, and fluorescent crests that go whoop at the mere sniff of a bit of How's Your Father. In this episode, an album of 173 watercolours of birds, painted by Sarah Stone in the late 18th century, now in the Natural History Museum in London. I really like Sarah Stone's paintings. I think there's a charm in the naivety of them. These were exotic, beautiful, highly coloured birds, completely unfamiliar to the British public. Looking at her work reminded me of being a kid and picking up a book on birds for the first time and thumbing through, looking at these images and thinking, wow, I've never heard that before. They aren't necessarily representing the exact version of the bird, but what Sarah Stone does is she captures a sort of feel of it, and of course that's very difficult in a still image. Sarah Stone was an English natural history illustrator and painter. Her work included many glorious studies of specimens brought back to England from expeditions in Australia and the Pacific. Now, in the late 18th and early 19th century, there wasn't any telly. So, frankly, an oversized book of exotic birds was pretty hot stuff. Entire dinner parties were probably arranged so that people could come and have a gander at your newly acquired depiction of a rare wattle bird. What's interesting is that Sarah Stone was often creating the very first images of many of the bird species that we know today. And she provided a bit of much needed colour to some very worthy scientific studies of the time. My name is Paul Martin Cooper. I'm the Special Collections Librarian, the Natural History Museum Library. Sarah Stone was a natural history artist, active in the last quarter of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century. Not a household name, but a woman who was unusual to create a professional artistic identity at that time. Let's have a look inside this album. Generally, there's one bird drawing pasted onto each separate page. The birds are primarily from Australia and the Pacific region, with bright oranges, yellows, greens and so forth. And in the conventional way of the time, each bird would be drawn perched on a little branch or tree stump. This was a conventional way of depicting bird specimens, but Sarah Stone's work is, let's say, a cut above the average. There were many natural history artists at that time who caught the characteristics that would help to make the bird identifiable. Sarah Stone has done that, but 
there's great delicacy of brushwork. Feathers individually picked out, wonderful coloration. There's a great deftness to the painting. You feel as if the drawings were made rather quickly, but very skillfully. Here we go. Plate 13, the African grey parrot. Now, this is a medium-sized breed of parrot. Fully grown, it's about 12 or 13 inches long. They're a native of equatorial Africa, predominantly found in dense forests. The plumage is grey with a darker grey on the head and wings. Slight white edges to the wings and tail feathers are red. The African grey is well known for its ability to mimic the human voice. Winston Churchill had one called Polly, who greeted guests to Chartwell with the cry of, We'll fight him on the beaches. My name is David Lindo. I am also known as the Urban Birder, and my whole thing is about trying to get people living in urban areas connected to nature and the environment in general, but through the medium of birds, and in particular, obviously, urban birds. Birds are a great way to get people involved because they are one of the most obvious life forms to be seen, especially if you live in an area which you think is devoid of life. Birds are everywhere. I mean, I was standing in this park and I'm watching blackbirds fly around. I can actually hear, well, I'm in Spain, so I can hear crested larks in the background. There's pied flycatchers and spotted flycatchers that are on migration and they stop off everywhere practically. They're very common this time of year as they pass through on their way to Africa. And of course, some have a really beautiful song. Some sing or make calls or they have characteristics that really appeal to us. And they are featured heavily in art and culture. You know, you walk down the road, there's public houses named after birds, there's streets named after birds. So I think it's a very major part of our lives and they are very connective and they're a great way of actually realizing that we are part of a bigger a bigger scenario you see birds are symbols of great aspiration they can be messengers from the gods symbols of our need to escape avatars with glorious songs and color the aztecs the greeks the early christians the romans native americans all have birds as key symbols in their culture i think birds really have a special place in the psyche of humanity some of them are very beautiful to look at. And obviously the flight aspect is something that really captivates and has captivated people throughout the ages. Turn to plate 17. The rhinoceros hornbill. That's a beauty. One of the largest species of forest hornbills. They can grow up to 31 inches in length. You find them in lowland and mountain rainforests in Borneo, Sumatra, the Malay Peninsula, and southern Thailand. Sharp black plumage, more Versace than Gucci, with white legs and a vent. That huge bill and cask are flaming orange and red. What a looker. My name's Stephen Moss, I'm an author and naturalist and nature writer based in Somerset. I have to admit, I'd never actually heard of Sarah Stone before, and I feel really bad about that because looking at the watercolours, they're extraordinary. You know, they really capture 
the birds of course they're of their time so there's a sort of old-fashioned quality about them and they would have been done from skins of birds she wouldn't have seen most of these birds if any of them alive so she would have had to have looked at them and imagine what the birds look like and by and large she sort of gets it more or less right you know you can recognize that it's a toucan or a hornbill or whatever and that's something that of course we take for granted now you know artists can obviously work from the real live birds or they can use photographs they can use moving footage and an artist like sarah stone would have had none of that and if they just also a, a very beautiful record of how people saw birds in that era sarah stone was very much a woman in a man's world she was born around 1760 in london her father was a professional fan painter don't knock it that was a noble thing back then so perhaps it was only natural that Sarah took up the paintbrush. What's fascinating is that her glorious illustrations weren't sketched in the field. Sarah didn't travel much at all. In fact, most of the images were created in a place in central London which is nowadays more associated with film premieres and nightclubs. Sarah Stone made the watercolour drawings on site at what was called the Lovarian Museum. That was a private museum belonging to Sir Ashton Lever, located in what is now called Leicester Square. He had a collection of live birds at his country estate near Manchester. Then he formed a collection of stuffed, preserved birds. Many of these had come back from voyages of expedition at that time. There was so much interest in them that he decided to open a public museum. These were exotic species not known certainly to the British public. Particularly, he acquired a lot of bird specimens from Captain Cook's third voyage, ending, well, sadly, with the death of Cook in 1779. Exactly how Ashton Lever and Sarah Stone first met isn't clear. But perhaps Sarah visited his museum off her own bat with a drawing pad and easel. Lever clearly saw her talent and employed her to make copies of the bird specimens that were on display in his gallery. And the idea for her album was born. I think he personally was very much drawn to her watercolours and felt that these were interesting and beautiful enough to actually place alongside the specimens in the gallery. So by 1784, she had made over 1,000 such watercolours. My name is Kate Maguire. I'm a sculptor and I work primarily with feathers. If you're imagining something like a dream catcher, think again, because my work is often monumental in scale and can be minuscule. It is muscular and curvy. And if you can imagine a sort of rather androgynous series of bodies that are entwined and maybe hugging each other or grasping each other, that's more the type of thing that I'm doing. And I cover these forms with layers of intricately placed feathers. I want to establish a sort of, or in, instill a, a sense of slight unease with the viewer. The work has no head or tail, and it's a constant sort of writhing mass. Kate Maguire was born on a boatyard in Norfolk and grew up playing around on the slipways. Much to her excitement, ducks and geese would hang around preening themselves and eventually Kate's fascination with them became a full-time artistic activity. 
I was walking down to the studio each morning and there would be pigeon feathers sitting on the floor. And I was thinking, where on earth are they from? And the birds were roosting in the very large warehouse next to my barge and they molt naturally. And they would flutter down as the birds preen themselves. So I picked them up and within a couple of weeks, I had two or three hundred feathers and started to layer them and use them. And they have a beautiful colouring to them, sort of a very, very fine gradation of grey to brown. You might think that sounds awful, but I think it's absolutely beautiful. And I started layering them and and realised I needed a lot to make a piece of work with them. So contacted all the racing pigeon enthusiasts that I could get hold of around the UK. I do like the idea of all those racing pigeons donating their unwanted feathers to the cause of modern art. Looking at Sarah Stone's work today, some of the birds look, well, a little bit stiff and not quite as colourful as they might be. But you have to remember that the specimens she was asked to draw had often been sent back from far-flung places and maybe hadn't fared all that well in transit. Often the colours of the legs would have diminished during the journey. The feathers would actually have remained the same. So any feather colour that she depicted would have been perfect. But the beak colour and the claws and legs would have diminished. So things that might have had bright red legs in her paintings would have had brown legs. The eyes are absolutely beautiful. And often she's drawing and painting the birds at a moment of display, which is really interesting. She would have had to do a certain amount of imagination to do that. Certainly with the mandarin duck, for example, it's in its moment of glory, trying to attract a mate. I think the way she depicts the feathers is astounding. She's, she's really clever at that and so much detail on them. Here's plate 104, a blue-backed mannequin. A small, plump, passerine bird about five inches in length. Found in the deciduous forests of tropical South America, males have black plumage with a bright blue back and a red or yellow crown. Females and juveniles are olive green with pale underparts. Less ostentatious than their close relatives, the Pompadour Cotinga and the Peruvian Cock of the Rock. From time immemorial, birds have been part of our mythology, our superstition, our culture. Of course, there are some very famous examples. The raven sent out from the ark by Noah, the white dove as a symbol of peace and love and fidelity, nightingales, skylarks, you know, there's a whole range of birds. And even today, when we think that our lives are not governed by superstitions, there are many people who, if they see a lone magpie, will greet it and say, hello, Mr. Magpie, how are all your children? So we think we're free of these sort of ancient superstitions and yet we still carry them on. We often use birds, we often impose our own emotions on them. And when I wrote my biography of the robin, I realised that there are sort of two robins out there. There's a biological bird that goes about its business and lives its life. Its only purpose really is to reproduce and raise young and then pass its genes on to the next generation. Yet there's also this other whole different side of a bird like the robin what i call the cultural robin and it's no less real but it's invented by us and it goes right the way back through time and it's everything from robins on christmas cards to the babes in the woods story or who killed cock robin or references in shakespeare or chaucer or various other writers i think the most interesting bird in poetry is the nightingale 
not really much to look at, but it has this extraordinary song. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Keats sees the nightingale very much as a sort of representation of his own emotion, that extraordinary outpouring of emotion that the song sounds like. Again, of course, that's not the reason behind the song. It's simply to attract female nightingales. But to Keats, it was very much a symbol of his own turbulent emotions. Whereas his contemporary John Clare, also rather patronisingly known as the peasant poet, but one of the great heroes of all nature writers, Clare wrote about the nightingale very differently. I love to hear the nightingale. She comes where summer dwells, among the brakes and orchis flowers and foxgloves' freckled bells. Where mugwort grows like mignonette and molehills swarm with ling, she hides among the greener may and sings her love to spring. Keats may not have ever seen a nightingale. He might possibly have heard one in his garden in Hampstead. Claire definitely knew what nightingales were. He grew up with them, he understood them. So Claire's poetry may not be quite as poetic as Keats's, but it's a bit more real. Nature may not always be cute and fluffy, but for many of us it's proved to be a vital comfort during a really difficult time. An extraordinary thing happened about, I suppose, two or three weeks after the start of lockdown. I was getting calls from friends or emails, mostly friends who live in the city, saying... Do birds always sing at this time of year? Are the birds singing louder now? I'm hearing all these birds. I've never heard birds before. And of course, there were lots of very good reasons for that. It was spring. It was the key time for birds. It was fantastically good weather. There was no aircraft noise. There was virtually no traffic. But I suppose most of all, people had stopped. They'd pressed pause on their lives. And they were going for walks and hearing the birds. And there was this very tiny silver lining... I think the nation almost fell in love with birdsong once again. Many of us have had the chance to spend a bit more time in nature, observing animals, birds, and perhaps having a feeling of being at one with nature. And David Lindo feels there's still far more to be done to make sure that everyone has the chance to connect with the natural world. There's been a lot said about inclusion diversity within the actual people that go out to watch nature. I mean, I've been watching birds all my life and I think I've only in my whole life in England bumped into a black face with binoculars maybe seven times in that whole period of time. And what's interesting is that the connection scenario, it's more than just doing it on the ground. It needs to come from all angles. It needs to be in our education system. It needs to be shown to us when people make public broadcasts on TV And I just feel that they just use the same people the whole time. So there's a lot of issues that I think should be addressed in order to get people to feel more comfortable about being involved. When we left Sarah Stone, she was busily painting in Sir Ashton Lever's museum. What happened then? Paul Martin picks up the story. 
Sarah actually had a very long life. She lived until 1844, but her artistic output seems to have tailed off as the 19th century progressed. She had married a naval officer, had children, and perhaps had less opportunity, less need to work. The record of Sarah's wedding describes her husband as being, quote, exceedingly handsome and of excellent parts. Sarah Stone had that extra level of skill that set her apart. They're beautiful paintings of birds, but in terms of the Natural History Museum, her work also has an important role in the history of science, the story of bird classification. She was being paid to do a recording job, which she obviously loved and did with very great detail. I'm in a different position and I make work that is unworldly and With the advent of video and photography, we know what birds are. But I'm trying to make something that is more mysterious, that taps into those things that we already know, but subvert them in some way to make us feel something else, something uncomfortable. I know that if I put a feather on to one of my sculptures and it's slightly at the wrong angle, that is the thing you'll see. And I think with her work, you would also see a sort of something jarring if it was not in place I wonder what she'd think about my work. I Hopefully she would admire the attention to detail, the accuracy of where the feathers are laid, and she would get great joy of that, I hope. So there we have it. Sarah Stone's fabulous album of birds. A wonderful thing to treasure and behold. I hadn't come across Sarah Stone before, but... When I looked at her work, I was really impressed because a lot of the birds she depicted were very recognisable and they were very true to life in terms of the markings that she portrayed. I really enjoyed looking at her work and I found myself going through hundreds. I didn't stop at two or three, I kept on going, thinking, what's next, what's next, what's next? For someone to take the time to do that shows that they have a love for those creatures, which you know, anyone that has that kind of love, as far as I'm concerned, is, is a friend of mine, definitely. Sarah Stone's Album of Birds is part of the collection of the Natural History Museum in London, and you can also see her bird watercolours online on the museum's website. It was acquired through the generous support of Art Fund members across the UK. You've been listening to Art and Stuff with me, Ben Miller. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs>